This is Sit Rap on BFBS. A new warning over PTSD are young and disadvantaged soldiers at greater risk. As violence escalates in Iraq, we ask if the problems could have been avoided. They cannot drive through this area, so how could a car bomb enter here and go off? It's a catastrophe. What happened here today is a catastrophe. Hello, I'm Claire Sadler, sitting in for Kate Jabot. Now, young soldiers from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to suffer from mental health problems. That's according to a report published this week by campaign group Forces Watch. In a moment, we'll be speaking to a former soldier who's been at the sharp end of post-traumatic stress disorder. But first, this report from Rosie Layden. Forces Watch say they've compiled their report from over 140 different sources. The report's author, David G, says there are some alarming findings relating to soldiers recruited at 16 and 17. If we look at the youngest age group in the armed forces and a matched age group in, of civilians, alcohol problems are three times as common uh, within the military group. Um, the suicide rate is also higher. That's the long-term suicide rate, both for people who commit suicide in the forces and those who leave the forces at a young age uh, and then commit suicide. Suicide among young soldiers is back in the headlines. The MOD confirmed this week an inquiry is underway into two cases of sudden death at a military base in County Down. Two soldiers serving with the 2nd Battalion, the Rifles, are believed to have taken their own lives in the last 11 months at Ballykinler Barracks. In March last Last year, Private Ashley Clarkson, who joined the army at 16, killed himself after witnessing the death of two children blown up by an IED in Iraq. Speaking in 2012, his mother, Mary Fells, told the BBC she thought he hadn't had the support he needed from the army. I think that mental health screening needs to be done, just the standard. When Ashley went to um, Chilwell Barracks on the second occasion, he gave my son a load of leaflets and told him to man up. He was a soldier, man up. Then on the day, he rang me up crying and 20 minutes after, he hung himself. Forces Watch are calling for the age of enlistment into the armed forces to be raised. There's very strong evidence that uh, those who enlist youngest are at uh, greater risk, particularly those who enlist at 16 and are given jobs in the infantry and then are on the front line from their, for shortly after their 18th birthday. We're the only state in the European Union to recruit from age 16, one of only 19 now worldwide. But the Ministry of Defence say there are no plans to revisit the government's recruitment policy for under-18s. The department claims independent research shows PTSD rates are similar to the civilian population, although they don't isolate figures for under-18s. In a state a spokesman said we take this issue extremely seriously which is precisely why this government has committed 7.4 million pounds to improving services and why we're working to reduce the stigma of mental illness through a number of initiatives and campaigns the impact of grueling campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan on soldiers' mental health continues to be a cause for concern. But there's disagreement about what the research shows. This week's report from Forces Watch is just the latest published by the pressure group to insist risks are increased in those under 18. But the Ministry of Defence continues to reject a link between youth and poor mental health. Well, I'm joined as usual by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, will the military ever truly be on top of PTSD, do you think? P, uh, it, PTSD changes 
um, and it's moved on. If you go back 100 years, post-World War I, PTSD was, was almost unrecognisable. And there was a different attitude in society. Post-World War II, uh, it was a heck of a lot of people, and people were dismissed and said, well, you know, could handle the war, but couldn't handle the peace. Korea, there wasn't so much of it. But we're now in a different form of warfare. When you think about it, uh, British forces have been in what I would call eyeball-to-eyeball warfare Mm. for a longer period, constant period, than any other time, and that includes, includes Northern Ireland, is also that there's a greater recognition and PTSD also has a different impact in among the civilians that a soldier will come in contact with. And so it's, it's one of those difficulties that unless you've got the right system within a company level, maybe even platoon level, at company level, and then certainly at battalion level, you may not actually recognise it. And a young soldier especially doesn't want people to recognise it uh, in, in exceptional circumstances. It's not until he gets outside of that uh, environment then perhaps it shows itself up in an advanced stage. Well, Jake Wood is a former TA soldier who worked for an investment bank in London and served on the front line in Iraq and Afghanistan. And after returning from Afghanistan, he was diagnosed with chronic PTSD. His book, Among You, is about to be published in paperback. Jake joins us now. Jake, you've suffered from PTSD and you've, you've come out the other side. What do you think about the Forces Watch report? Um, well, the first thing to mention is that, uh, like, technically, I haven't actually come out the other side. I, I still live with PTSD now. Um, but uh, in terms of the, uh, the Forces Watch report, um, I've, I've watched it, but, but I haven't actually read mm. you know, the report that you mentioned. Um, it, it seemed, I personally can um, you know, believe that... Uh, Young soldiers from like disadvantaged backgrounds, as uh, as has been stated, might be more uh, susceptible to PTSD. Um, I don't know that you know for sure, but I can uh, I can imagine you know the circumstances how they might be. Um, but this seems to be identifying um, another at risk group. Um, I I come from another at-risk group which is uh the ta and it's um it's only recently been acknowledged by the mod that uh the ta soldiers are, are in actual fact twice as likely to come down with ptsd and this is because um, and it's something that christopher mentioned actually um it's it's all to do with the you know the sudden immersion in in uh, civilian life when they come back home they don't you know ta soldiers do this you know, there's 36 hours of like decompression in in like Cyprus, but uh, that's it. After a few weeks' leave, they're just straight back to their you know civilian lives, and so that's why TA soldiers are are more at risk. Um, in terms of younger soldiers, um, man, I mean, uh, I just find it heartbreaking. I mean, uh, my Afghan tour was my third tour, um, but I did uh, like two tours of Iraq. Yeah, you know, before that, um, all in a five-year period, and um, all of them were what could be called, you know, a front line. Um, and um, I came down with PTSD in in my mid-thirties, and uh, I was from a middle-class, you know, background. So I can, you know, my heart bleeds for the, uh, you know, the young nineteen-year-old, eight, eighteen-year-old who who um, who 
his first tour will be Afghanistan of all places. You, um, you, you, know. you, you hear people say that they, they don't come back from war the same person. Hmm. Did you notice the change in yourself brought about by, by PTSD? Um, yes, I did. Uh, yeah. I, I, whilst I was in Afghanistan, I, I, can, I can think back now and I can... Um, with how I've been educated, educated subsequently by uh, like psychologists, I can I can actually pinpoint you know you know the day that that um, I emotionally shut down, um, which is the 11th of August 2007, um, where we lost our our like company commander and um, and like two other soldiers died um, over those two days as well. That you know the 10th and 11th, and and that was a point where um, I can. I can remember um, just stopping um, a feeling. Uh, it was it was just all emotion, just like shut down kind of thing. And that's that that sort of uh, automatic self defence mechanism we all have inbuilt in into us, where the mind goes, okay, you know that's just too much, and it just emotionally shuts down. And and it's not something you have any control over. And this is this is apparently what this you know this thousand yard stare looks like, where you know the mind is just gone okay that's enough um i'm just emotionally switching off and and you can operate mechanically as a soldier off off that point at least in my experience but but i think operating mechanically as a soldier is is all you become capable of doing um and and this is a problem when you come back ptsd often manifests itself or uh, often a result of it is violence and drinking is that something that that you turn mm. to um not the violence uh but i can uh, i'm not condemning any any guys at all who um who, are, who have problems with that in uh particular because i can understand it there there is a lot of anger um there tends to be a lot of anger uh repressed but 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 this is just carried you know it's just carried back home you know, from Afghanistan, I think, and uh, one of the coping mechanisms uh, that can be in terms of self-medication, um, like drinking, and um, and you know, this isn't an answer, and it actually makes you worse. And uh, but I, at one point, I I was drinking every single night on my own at home, and then I just reached a point where I, just, I actually thought, man, what are you doing? Um, and um, yeah. I, I self-medicate in other ways now with electronic cigarettes and and the pills, you know, that, you know that my doctor gives me. <laughs> um, but, uh, oh. but 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 I can understand it, and and I think if if uh, if a soldier is concerned about coming forward and saying, look, yeah, I think I've got PTSD, then then yes, there will be this danger that they will self-medicate with alcohol and um, and the repressed anger will bubble up unfortunately in terms of violence yeah okay jake uh, th thanks for joining us i think you're going to stay with us to discuss some other issues uh, later in the program well bombings of of bus stations cafes restaurants and even mosques have become part of everyday life in iraq more than 400 people have been killed in attacks in iraq this month alone mostly in the capital and the figures do not include those who may die later of their injuries earlier this week at least 39 people were killed in a wave of car bomb attacks around the iraqi capital mainly in shia areas separately 
a bomber blew himself up in the northern city of Mosul near troops queuing at a bank, killing 14 people. The BBC's Ahmed Mar sent this report from Baghdad. Carnage on the streets of Baghdad. Bombers struck during morning rush hour in a series of coordinated blasts. Busy streets, markets, residential areas were targeted. Among those killed in the attacks across Iraq were people queuing to collect their wages. They cannot drive through this area, so how could a car bomb enter here and go off? It's a catastrophe. What happened here today is a catastrophe. A child, a woman and the father, three members of the same family, have been killed. It is the latest escalation of sectarian violence in a country torn apart by conflict between Sunni and Shia militant groups. The rising violence has put increased pressure on the Shia-led government to prove its ability to keep sectarian tensions under control. Iraq's army wants the assistance of local people to end the violence. So why has the situation deteriorated so rapidly? Colonel Richard Kemp is a former commander of British forces in Afghanistan and has also been responsible for assessments on Iraq for the Joint Intelligence Committee. And Jake Wood, who served in Iraq, is also still with us. Firstly, Colonel Kemp, what's gone wrong in Iraq? Well, effectively, there there are two main problems. And the first one was the complete withdrawal of the Americans. That was never an intention. It was always intended the Americans would retain um, some capability in Afghanistan to back up the Iraqi... I beg your pardon, in Iraq, to back up the Iraqi security forces. Um, But then um, I think there was discussion and problems in 2011 over the legal status of American forces. And rather than fight that and try and, and, try and uh, maintain force levels in Iraq, the Americans, which, who, who were, I think, President Obama was just desperate to get out, and he did get out. And so, as a consequence, the Iraqis have lacked a huge capability against um, al-Qaeda terrorists, which have allowed those terrorists, as well as other extremists, because al-Qaeda is not the only extremist operating in Iraq today, have allowed them to, to re-establish themselves. And since the low of th- about 3,000 deaths in a year back in 2011, when the Americans managed to get it under control, um, we've now seen that double, in, certainly in the last year, this, this last year, to, to 6,000 deaths. And I think it's just climbing higher and higher and higher. So what do you think the Iraqi Prime Minister should be doing now? Well, in effect, the um, the Iraqis, despite years and years and years and huge amounts of money invested in training and preparation for them, um, have basically abandoned all of the, the the techniques that worked so well with the Americans, and that includes sort of population-centred counter-terrorist operations where um, security forces lived in in small locations among the Iraqi population. They've now withdrawn to very large bases a long way away. Uh, and they they now carry out much more blunt sort of uh, mass arrests and punishment operations, which which actually, if anything, exacerbate the problem. Um, and they've also effectively done away with the awakening councils, which were Sunni groups um, in various parts of Iraq who who'd been effectively bought off by the Americans and turned on Sunni extremists and were fighting a lot of the fight for for, for the Americans and the Iraqi government. They've been effectively abandoned. And I think those two things and and a number of other tactics and techniques that the Americans taught the Iraqis have just been effectively thrown away. So they need to be reinstituted for a start. But I I would also stress that uh, if this this situation continues to deteriorate, which I think it will, um, it does need the kind of sophistication that that only the Americans, I think, can really provide in Iraq. 
Christopher, should the current situation in Iraq act as a warning to how we deal with the drawdown in Afghanistan? I think it's a warning, but let's not say uh, Afghanistan is going to be the same as as Iraq. I mean, the origins of this very early stage was the decision to disband the uh, more or less the Iraqi army, especially the officer class, that in Iraq you have the differences between the Sunnis, once the ruling class, uh, backed up partly by al-Qaeda, Shia, now the ruling class, the Kurds further in in the north. But this is a battle between Shia and, and Sunni in theory alone. When you get to Afghanistan, you have much bigger elements. The bigger elements are not only what's happening there at the moment, and that is the determination to train a national army that can look after security as best it can, but also you have the other elements, and that's really important, and that is that it's a regional conflict uh, and a regional, not solution, but a help towards a solution. So you, P- Pakistan becomes very important, India becomes important, Central Asian republics become very important. And that is, if you like, not a lesson learned, but is being able to organise, cope, and really hope that you will get so far with the elements that are there that you do recognise and that you're making making a concentrated effort to bring about some sort of security. The big test next year, when they have the elections, Karzai goes, the elections, then you can turn around and say, OK, now what do we do? Jake Wood, I'd like to bring you back in here. Do you think that soldiers who served in Iraq have been let down by this deterioration in the situation in the country? Um, I don't know about let down, but um, I'm going to bow to uh, Christopher's and, and Richard's uh, knowledge as to why exactly things are, are going wrong now. But, I mean, what I would like to try and do is 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 to try and give an ordinary soldier's uh, perspective from... You know the ground level, um, and um, I think we just wanted it to be worth it. And, um, and the first time I went to Iraq was the invasion, and I was actually there for um, uh, like Colonel Tim Collins's uh, very famous eve of battle speech, where he said that we go to liberate and not to conquer. And um, and I can remember back then there was this great feeling of um, it was almost hope. And, um, yeah, but then I went back to Iraq a year later, you know, to do uh, surveillance on, on these insurgents, which had, you know, suddenly appeared. And, and uh, so uh, with, how, you know, with how quickly things had changed on the ground, just in the space of a year, you know, that I'm not surprised how things are going now. Um, OK, Jake, thank you. I do just need to go back to Colonel Kemp briefly, uh, uh, please, Colonel Kemp. What, what do you think the future holds? Well, unfortunately, it, it looks bleak, <clears throat> and the, the reality is that Al Qaeda is trying its best to um, to expand the the very successful uh, insurgency that, that exists in Syria to expand that into Iraq, so that um, it, you have a, you have effectively a regional insurgency. At present, that's not happening because so much is there's an unprecedented level of, um, of of resources and terrorists flooding into Syria. But when that stops, when that stabilizes, I think Iraq had better be ready for a very, very significant onslaught. OK, Richard Kemp and Jake Wood, thank you for joining us today. Jake's book, Among You, is published in paperback next week. Still to come, a special report from Bahrain on Exercise Omar and people of all faiths and none prepare to remember. 
We all know about the Royal Navy and their role patrolling waters worldwide, but how much do you know about the Merchant Navy? Well, they're part of the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, a civilian manned fleet of around 20 ships that's owned by the Ministry of Defence. Their primary role is to supply the Royal Navy at sea with food, fuel, ammunition and spares. But there's one unique ship in the fleet that goes the extra mile. She's called RFA Diligence and she's been on exercise Omar in the Gulf to test out her capabilities. Laura Hawkins was on board. 20 ships make up the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, but it's diligence that stands out from the crowd. She was originally bought from trade to take to the Falklands, but was subsequently bought by the MOD and started her life with the RFA in 1983. 30 years later, she's starting a new five-year deployment in the Gulf, which is now the main area of operations for the Royal Navy. It's therefore vital that she can carry out top-class support and assistance whenever called upon. Here's her captain, Trevor Isles. We like to think of ourselves as the floating Swiss army knife. You tell us what the job is and we're adaptable and we'll get on and do it. RFA Diligence is unique because she's the one and only forward repair ship. When your car breaks down, you call on roadside assistance. When a Royal Navy ship breaks down, they call upon Diligence. Exercise OMAR, which stands for Operational Maintenance and Repair, is testing that Diligence can carry out the best job possible. The scenario starts with communications coming in from a Type 23 frigate, HMS Montrose. Officer Watch, flash message from Montrose. Uh, they have been hit by a merchant vessel. Stand by for further tasking. Four separate teams make up diligence and they're all informed immediately of the emergency. The Naval Party 1600 are a team of naval mechanics that have specialist skills. Lieutenant Commander Trevor Bradley takes a rib over to HMS Montrose to assess the damage. We'll come on board with the salvage officers. They'll work on the big heavy areas itself of keeping the ship afloat. We'll work on restoring the power and the generation and all the other capability to the ship so she can carry on afloat and resume her tasking whenever possible. HMS Montrose needs urgent assistance. Diligence can either tow her into a nearby port so that she can get the help she needs or raft up alongside her and use their team of experts to get her operational again. They decide to raft up. Commander Julian Filo is the officer in charge of Exercise Omar. The aims of this exercise are to bring together the elements, uh, RFA Diligence, Naval Party 1600 and the, the Salvage and Marine organisation to, to prove that they can work together and to prove that we can support ships whilst they're deployed. This hasn't actually been done since 2006. It's all hands on deck as the rafting takes place and a gangway straddling the two vessels is put into position. Diligence has the manpower and the facilities to support HMS Montrose, much to the relief of their captain, Commander James Parkin. To practice with a Type 23 frigate taken away from operational duties for a few hours is immense. But thank goodness they're here to do that because I feel reassured that were the worst to happen, for whatever reason, I could be rescued and repaired by friendly faces wearing uniform who are able to give us that expert help. For nearly 30 years, diligence has been an insurance policy for Royal Navy vessels and submarines in trouble. And the success of this exercise has been proof that she still can give first-class assistance. Laura Hawkins for BFBS off the coast of Bahrain. This is BFBS. Sit 
A rival remembrance service is being held this weekend for atheists. The Humanist Service will be hosted by TV historian Dan Snow and will take place a week before the official ceremony at the Cenotaph. BFBS reporter Kaya Lark has more details. Kaya, what do we know about this service? Well, as you say, Dan Snow will be the main speaker at the service. Now, he describes himself as a passionate atheist. Uh, it'll take place at Conway Hall in London and it's part of the Atheist Sunday Assembly, uh, which you may or may not have heard of. It was launched last week as an alternative to the services of faith. Now, it'll be attended by members of the UK Armed Forces Humanist Association and, interestingly, it'll include pop songs, poems, moments of reflection and a secular talk. The music, uh, which will be included, um, will be a brass quartet of traditional military songs as well as some more modern music such as He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother and Lean On Me. There'll also be footage of soldiers in the trenches shown singing the first World War song Keep the Fires Burning and the poem Inquisitive Child will be read. There'll also be a talk from a serving soldier who'll presumably be telling his own personal story of losing comrades on the battlefield. But the Remembrance Service at the Cenotaph isn't actually a religious service, is it? It isn't, though many people do feel that the official proceedings have become rather religious-focused over recent years, and particularly with strong leanings to a Christian view of remembrance. Now, I've been speaking to the various world faith chaplains within the armed forces. It's difficult to know the exact figures, but there are an, an estimated eight to 9,000 serving personnel across the three services of non-Christian faith. Now, that includes Muslim, Buddhist... Sikh, Hindu and Jewish. Um, now, each faith has its own chaplain and each faith is represented at the Cenotaph service. They generally agree that this service for atheists is a good idea. First, let's hear from the Armed Forces Rabbi, Reuben Livingston. I think it's a great thing. There is a faith dimension and there is a general dimension. And in fact, many of our adherents would uh, wish simply to remember and they may or may not see this as a religious duty. Some of them will, of course, I will, but many others will simply value the idea of pausing and of remembering. And I think anyone can do that under any guise. Now, the Muslim chaplain Imam Ali Omar also agrees that what's actually really important here is that the war dead are remembered. I would encourage all communities to uh, do a remembrance of uh, those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. At least that's something which will bring us all as a nation together. We'll have uh, a focus, and the focus at this time is to remember those who uh, have given the ultimate sacrifice uh, in defence or for, for the sake of uh, the rest of the community. Now, the Sikh, Hindu and Buddhist chaplains also agree. They believe everyone has the right to remember however they choose to do that, as you would probably expect a very tolerant and inclusive response from all the leaders. And there will, of course, be those who have no faith who attend remembrance services both in London and across the country next weekend and on the 11th. So is this atheist service a one-off? Well, it's difficult to know at the moment. Dan Snow and the organisers certainly hope not. They're hoping it will become part of the annual remembrance calendar, despite receiving some criticism that it doesn't have the gravitas of the proceedings at the Cenotaph. It will be interesting, though, to see just how many people do attend and whether indeed it makes a return next year. OK, Kaya, thank you. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is, of course, still with us. Uh, Christopher, your thoughts on remembrance and religion? I mean, as somebody who um, has been, been to so many religious services and non-religious services connected with Poppy Day or Remembrance, including when I was commanding in the Navy, we had our own individual thing. I cannot remember anybody 
anybody assuming that it was a religious service. And the fact that you went along or didn't go along, I mean, if you are in the Navy, you had to go along, but it, it is, seems to me a totally ludicrous idea and that Dan Snow has either got a book coming out or a television programme or needs the publicity. I can't think of another reason to do it. You don't think it's good just to have as many services as possible? Well, they do. And that's the whole point. Nobody turns around and says, oh, you can't come to this because you're an atheist. That's absolute crass nonsense and, you know, one might expect it. All right, then. So, uh, Christopher, let's uh, turn and have a look now. Uh, what else is of interest in the news this week? Let's start with reserves. Uh, conference in London next week. Uh, the TA reserves that we've been talking about. Mobilisation. Is it a reality? Is it actually working? Mm, OK, and what about uh, Afghanistan? Afghanistan's very good at the moment because AWACS, you know, Airborne Warning and Control Systems, the aircraft you know, that flies over with a big yep. dish on it and spotting all sorts of things, clocked up 10,000 hours this week. It's a big landmark. It's a pity we, the uh, United Kingdom scrapped their own AWACS. AWACS. Mm, uh, Egypt? Egypt. General Mohammed uh, Farid Tommy has been rehabilitated. Now, that doesn't sound very much, except that he was a great supporter of Mubarak, and there's a sense that they're going back, the military's going back to the old Mubarak days. OK, Cougar 13. Uh, yeah, we were talking about Bahrain earlier on. Cougar 13 is a, is a year-long or summer-long exercise, uh, mainly with, with the Navy, mainly with the, and, and, the, and, and the Marines. They're operating in Amman at the moment. Absolutely marvellous. Wash up there with the Amani uh, forces. Really quickly, the most powerful people in the world, who are they? I'll tell you who they are. Forbes magazine has said, that, uh, is it uh, Putin is, the Russian, then comes the American Obama, then it goes right the way down, and it gets down to Michael Duke, who is Walmart, runs Walmart. The one person that's missing on that, Cameron. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee. Slip rips back at the same time next, next week, but now from me, Claire Sadler. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British Forces.